Good evening, everybody. Am I the only person that can think of songs I want to sing? And then when, when, when Alan asks, oh, great, time for favorites, you can't think of anything else? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Man, <laughs> that's ruined me. <laughs> it's not even my favorite song anymore. That's the thing. <laughs> but I guess it will always be my favorite song. If you can, please stand with me as we read our passage, and then I'll pray, and we'll get right into it. Um, our passage is Deuteronomy 10, if you want to turn to it. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 12 through 22. Deuteronomy 10, 12 through 22. Okay. It says this, And now, Israel, what doth the Lord thy God require of thee, but to fear the Lord thy God, to walk in all his ways, and to love him, and to serve the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul, to keep the commandments of the Lord and his statutes, which I command thee this day for thy good. Behold, the heaven and the heaven of heavens is the Lord's thy God, the earth also, with all that therein is. Only the Lord had a delight in thy fathers to love them, and he chose their seed after them, even you above all people, as it is this day. Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart, and be no more stiff-necked. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, a great God, a mighty and a terrible, which regardeth not persons, nor taketh reward. He doth execute the judgment of the fatherless and widow, and loveth the stranger, and giving him food and raiment. Love ye therefore the stranger, for ye were strangers in the land of Egypt. Thou shalt fear the Lord thy God, him shalt thou serve, and to him shalt thou cleave, and swear by his name. He is thy praise, and he is thy God, that hath done, thee, done for thee these great and terrible things, which thine eyes have seen. Thy fathers went down into Egypt with threescore and ten persons, and now the Lord thy God hath made thee as the stars of heaven for multitude. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you now, God, to worship you, to hear about your word, to come to know you deeply, more deeply because of it, God. I pray that you would use me to proclaim and preach your word, dear God, uh, that you would take any error out of my mouth, Lord, and that you would just bless us from it. That uh, from these testimonies um, that we are about to read, dear God, that we would just come to a greater um, level of worship and reverence to you and for what you've done for us in saving us by sending your son, Jesus. We thank you, and I just pray, God, that you would just bless us now in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, you may be seated. So Deuteronomy 10 12 through 22 is our passage, and I just want to say this, I really, really, really am going to try to keep this to a shorter amount, I promise, no more 50-minute sermons. <laughs> so just for some context here, um, if you haven't ever read the book of Deuteronomy, um, firstly, the name means second law, it's the second giving of the law. Um, the person speaking here is Moses. Moses is speaking to the Israelites, and he's speaking in an area that's close to Jericho, and they're on the other side of the river, the Jordan River. So they haven't yet crossed it. Um, if you don't know, the people had wandered in the desert for 40 years. 
Uh, this wasn't because of bad navigational um, men <laughs> or GPS failure. This was because of Israel's faithfulness, faith, faithlessness, and sin. And so God told them that that entire generation would have to die out before they could cross. God had to purge his people. Um, the book, Deuteronomy, is written almost entirely by Moses, um, only except the latter part, which was written most likely by Joshua. And um, the book contains Moses' final dialogues and speeches to his people, Israel, before he passed away. What we're about to read tonight is one of his speeches that he gave to Israel, um, pleading with them to, to not forsake the covenant that God had given them, to be faithful, um, knowing that they were going to be unfaithful. And so that's our text, that's the context. Um, and as I said before, this is uh, Moses speaking. He's chosen by God to be the leader of the Israelites. He had served God faithfully for 40 years, leading a bickering people uh, who mumbled and grumbled the entire way. Um, God fulfilled his promise in bringing his people out of Egypt, right? Uh, they had been there for 400 years, and as God had promised Joseph, he brought the people out. And at that point, the Israelites, they were a vast multitude. Um, some, some estimate around 2 million people at that time. And again, we see that God didn't allow uh, the Israelites to cross, into, cross over the Jordan until that generation had died out because of their unbelief. Um, I want to kind of touch on that first. Go with me to Numbers, Numbers 32, 6 through 13. And we won't get into this, but... Um, the author of Hebrews, I think in chapter 4, uh, makes a parallel of this, of the fact that the Israelites couldn't cross over into the Jordan because of their unbelief. And he parallels that to his, to his audience, to his, uh, the readers of his epistle, saying that, that we need to have faith and we can't cross over. We can't be saved unless we have faith. We can't cross that river, um, is how he parallels it. But our passage that we're going to look at just for some context is Numbers 32, 6 through 13. It says this, And Moses said unto the children of Gad, and to the children of Reuben, Shall your brethren go to war, and shall ye sit here? And wherefore discourage ye the heart of the children of Israel from going over into the land which the Lord hath given them? Thus did your fathers, when I sent them from Kadesh Barnea, to see the land. For they went up unto the valley of Eskel, and saw the land. They discouraged the heart of the children of Israel, that they should not go into the land which the Lord had given them. And the Lord's anger was kindled the same time, and he sware, saying, Surely none of the men that came up out of Egypt from twenty years old and upward shall see the land which I swear unto Abraham and Isaac and unto Jacob, because they have not wholly followed me, save Caleb the son of Je <laughs> Jephunneth and the, Ke the Kenazite, excuse me, and Joshua the son of Nun, for they have wholly followed the Lord. And the Lord's anger was kindled against Israel, and he made them wander in the wilderness forty years, until all the generation that had done evil in the sight of the Lord was consumed. So go back to our text. Again, Moses speaking to the Israelites, and he begins by asking a very probing, interesting question. Uh, look at it in verse, <clears throat> verse 10, 12, excuse me. And now, Israel, what doth the Lord thy God require of thee? What did God require of his people? Um, the people, they were currently under the, the Mosaic Covenant, right? You had different covenants throughout the Old Testament, the, the Abrahamic Covenant, then you've got the Noahic Covenant, and now you've got the Mosaic Covenant that the people are currently under, okay? And in this covenant, 
was God's giving of the law, right? All the ceremonial, the civic, the moral laws, all of those things, this is the covenant that God had given them. And as we know, God purchased Israel. It says he ransomed Israel. Uh, in Isaiah 43, 3, it says this, For I am the Lord thy God, the Holy One of Israel, thy Savior. I gave Egypt for thy ransom. So God, he ransomed his people out of Egypt, and now he had laws that they were to follow. He gave them these laws. And as we see, we'll see later on, these laws, they weren't, they weren't, um, they weren't restrictive to the, in the sense that they were, God was just trying to keep those people down, keep them from having fun, keep them from flourishing. But these laws were actually there for, for their benefit. They were there for their protection. Uh, God had a purpose in giving these laws, um, these very special laws. So we're going to kind of just go through this passage here, and we're just going to see what it says. So verse 12, we'll read it again. Moses kind of answers the question for us, And now, Israel, what doth the Lord, the Lord thy God require of thee but to fear the Lord thy God? That's number one, to fear him. That's the first thing. We're going to see five points here. Number one is to fear him. The question now comes up, what does it mean to fear him? You know, there's different types of fear. Um, and so what exactly does, how exactly does God want us to fear him? The Hebrew word that's used here, I'm going to try to pronounce it, don't make fun of me, is yeri, yeri. And it means to experience an emotional reaction of fear, terror, or apprehension. Right? So we should fear God in the sense that we should be apprehensive about displeasing him. We shouldn't be quick to sin against him. We're quick to leave the way that he's called us. We should, be, we should be fearful of doing those things, apprehensive. And, you know, we know from reading the Old Testament and even the New Testament that God has done many great and fearful things, right? Namely what? Number one, the flood. God destroyed the entire earth, uh, the entire, all the people on the earth, save eight souls, Number two, the, the confusion at the Tower of Babel. He took that multitude of people that they had all gathered together. That was like the first major empire, I guess you can say, in the Bible. And God took them, changed their languages, changed their dialects and whatnot, and dispersed them across the world. Um, and we know in Acts 17 that it says that God appointed the place of these boundaries. So God designated the places that they would go to. You know, some, some question on whether or not uh, how God did that, you know, some say uh, he teleported them, um, you know, some people just say that he directed them, not for me to say, but I kind of think the first one's a little bit interesting, and lastly, the third one, probably the most recent and the most obvious one was the Exodus, God demonstrated his, his power and the necessity to fear him in that he overthrew the supreme power of that time, like, Egypt was unrivaled, there was no one that could stand close to Egypt. I mean, those guys were like the first major military power, unrivaled, uncontested. They were, they were like the America <laughs> of, the, of the ancient world. They were not to be trifled with. And in, in a matter of days, God just destroyed them. He just wrecked them. He sent plagues that destroyed the country, destroyed their food, caused great pain on its citizens by, by boils and by beasts and animals. Uh, he slayed the firstborn of every person, including Pharaoh, and he utterly destroyed hundreds, if not thousands, of the chariots of that time, which, fun fact, I believe can still be found today. There's a, there's a uh, sea in Egypt, and they won't let you explore it, 
interesting enough. They won't let you explore it, but they've got these little coral reefs that are kind of are formed, right? And it's, it's, it's undeniable. These coral reefs, they, the way that they're formed, they're like circular. And they've got, what do you call those things in, in, the, in the middle of the tire? Yeah. <laughs> they've got those things. And they've got like a wheel, uh, a pipe coming. I mean, it looks just like a chariot. It's, it's undeniable. So I'm convinced that's where, that's where the, uh, the, the parting of the waters happened. But, but anyways, even if we can't find it, the fact that the word says it is enough for me. But God overthrew, like the chariots were like, like that was, their, that was their might. That was their power. Chariots were, if you wanted to win wars, you would use chariots and God just, just drowned them all. He just destroyed them. So God is, is someone to be feared. And we can see that in, in the feats that he's done. He's a powerful, fearsome being who is not to be disrespected or treated lightly. And the Israelites, they were to fear him. They were to be apprehensive about displeasing him. They were to show him the due honor that he deserves. You know, when you fear something, you try to avoid conflict at all, at all costs. You don't want to get in the way. You want to make sure that you're walking with whoever it is that you fear. If you have a boss, you want to make sure you're walking with your boss. You don't want to come in contact or conflict with him. And in a sense, that's how the Jews were to follow God. They were to follow with him and not come into conflict with him. And, and really, the way to do that was to, to do what he says here, to, to keep his commandments, to follow his laws. And, and these laws, they were for their own good. So the Israelites, they were to obey God, and in doing so, they would avoid conflict and God's displeasure. Jesus says in Matthew 10, 28, we know this verse, Don't fear them which kill the body and cannot kill the soul, but fear him who kills the body and the soul. And is able to, I'm sorry, but rather fear him who's able to, who, who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. And also in Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Right? It's the beginning of wisdom. You can't, you can't be wise. You can't understand God until you have a healthy fear of God. And so that's how he starts it off in verse 12. What does God require of thee? But to fear the Lord thy God, number two, to walk in all his ways. To walk in all his ways. So the question comes up, what does it mean to walk in all his ways? You know, the Bible says that we are image bearers of God, that we are made in the image of God. And as the Israelites are too. And so because of that reality, that fact, we share some qualities with God. Although our qualities are tainted by sin, and they're much less than God's, we still share some qualities with God. Uh, number one, I guess most obvious would be like our sense of justice in us. Right? No other animal will, will, will travel thousands of miles to, to, to get retribution on an animal or seek justice. Animals don't do that. The only people that do that are people. <laughs> the, the, only, the only creatures that do that are, are humans, right? Because we're made differently than animals. We're not the same as animals. We're made in the image of God, and God is just. And he has made us, to a sense, just. Or at least we have a, we have a, a fallen sense of justice and righteousness. So man has a, has a sense of justice, and we see that principle taught in Romans 2.1. Uh, if you could turn with me, please. Romans 2.1. This is a great verse to memorize, by the way. 
great apologetic here when you're witnessing to somebody. Romans 2.1 says this, Therefore thou art inexcusable, O man, whosoever thou art that judgest, for wherein thou judgest another, thou condemnest thyself. For thou that judgest doest the same things. You know, some people have this idea that there's no ultimate right or wrong. And that's a really easy one to kind of deflate, just to kind of stick a hole in the tire there. And you just say, okay, fine, you don't believe there's any right or wrong. Well, give me all your money, give me all of your property, give me your car keys, give me your house deed, give it all to me. And, you know, I'm, gonna just, I'm just going to take it from you and you can't do anything, from, you, you can't stop me. And what are they going to say? Well, no, that's wrong. That's, you, you can't do that. Why? Because it's, it's, it's wrong. You know, we're quick to, when someone steals from us, we're quick to say, that's wrong, you stole from me. Or when someone lies to us, we're, we're, we're quick to say, oh, that hurt, he shouldn't have lied. And in doing so, we're, we're submitting that there's some transcendent authority above us, that, that, that lying is wrong. Lying is wrong because it's wrong, and stealing is wrong because it's wrong. Um, so we have like a sense of righteousness in us. And also, you don't have to turn here, Romans 2.14 uh, talking about the Gentiles, says, For when the Gentiles, which have not the law, do by nature the things contained in the law, these, having not the law, are a law unto themselves, which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts the mean, while accusing or else excusing one another. What that means is that, that even though Gentiles, they were not given Deuteronomy, they weren't given the, the law, right? They, they didn't get the two tablets that Moses had. Even though they weren't given that, you can still see the work of the law written in their hearts by their cultures and by their life. You know, this is an interesting study, but there was this person, I can't remember the details too much, but this guy went to like this indigenous tribe and he stayed there for a number amount of years in an effort to try to evangelize them. And he stayed there and he learned their language and he kind of became, not like friends, but they accepted him in. And he asked them a question, a very simple question. What, is some, what are some things that a man ought not to do? And this will blow your mind, but they, well, maybe it won't blow your mind. They said, a man shouldn't murder. A man shouldn't steal. A man shouldn't take another man's wife. And you see those same commandments in the Ten Commandments. And these people who have never been given the law, intuitively, they have a basic understanding of right and wrong in their hearts. And so that's what it's saying here in our text. I'll go back now to Deuteronomy again. Deuteronomy 10. So the Israelites, Moses saying to walk in the ways of God, that meant to behave themselves in the conduct like God. They were to be like him or imitators of him. If God was just, they were to be just. If God was, was merciful, they were to be merciful. If he was loving, they were to be merciful. And that's what it means there, to, to walk in the ways of God. And we see that reinforced in, in, even in the New Testament, right? Ephesians 4.32, Be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. You know, like that, that's the premise of forgiveness. We, we can't hold a grudge at anybody because of how much we've been forgiven. And it's the same way for these people at that time as well. So those are the, that's number two, right? The first one, to fear him. Number two, to, to walk in his ways. Number three, to love him, to love him. 
What does it mean to love God? You know, no matter, you can, you can love something sincerely, but if you're loving it the wrong way, it's not real love. You know, there are lots of people who, who, who think that they love God, but in their actions, they really hate him. In, in what they do, they're actually, they're, they're, they're anti-God. And the Israelites in our passage, they were commanded to love him. But they were to do that firstly by obeying him. You know, what good is love that doesn't act, right? If I say, God, I love you, but I'm not willing to do any of the things that you say for me to do, what good is that? If I say to the needy saint, go in peace and be warmed and filled, and I give him nothing when he needs, you know, some nourishment, what good is that faith, right? What is, even James says that. What good is that faith? Go in peace and be warmed and filled, is what he says there. If they were to say, Lord God, we love you, but we're going to continue to serve Baal, or we're going to continue to serve other gods, or we're going to continue to intermarry with the other peoples which God prohibited not to do, but they say, oh, God, we love you. Look at the sacrifices that we give you. That love is vain. That love is useless. They are to love him in sincerity and in truth. Turn with me a couple of chapters back to Deuteronomy 7. Deuteronomy 7. It says this, For thou art a holy people unto the Lord thy God. The Lord thy God hath chosen thee to be a special people unto himself, above all people that are upon the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love upon you, nor choose you, because ye were more, more in number than any people. For ye were the fewest of all people. But because the Lord loved you, and because he would keep the oath which he had sworn to your fathers, hath the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand, and redeemed you out of the house of bondmen from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. You know, the Israelites, they had much to love God for because God had done much for them already. And it was out of this love that God had given them that they should have obeyed his commands. That should have fueled their love for God. So that's the third thing he tells them. Number four, he says, to serve him with all of your heart and soul. Oh, go back to our text, Deuteronomy 10. Deuteronomy 10, 12. To fear the Lord thy God, to walk in all his ways, to love him. Number four, to serve the Lord thy God with all of your heart and soul. What does that mean, to serve him? I'm going to ask this question for each one we go through. What does it mean to serve him? Question, does God need serving? Right? God is self-sufficient. You think about, about what the world or existence looked like before God had made all things. He was in perfect fellowship and unity with with the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, before anything existed, they were, they existed. God doesn't need anyone to serve him. God, he owns all things. You know, and Carmel, you mentioned First Chronicles, and I was a little bit nervous because I thought you were going to bring up this passage. Um, but there's a great, great prayer that David gives in the end of First Chronicles. And I would, I would love to read it to you. You don't have to turn here, but if you want. First Chronicles 29, 13 through 16, it says this. Now, therefore, our God, this is David talking, now, therefore, our God, we thank thee and praise thy glorious name. But who am I and what is my people that we should be able to offer so willingly after this sort? This is, remember, um, not remember, but context, they, they're about to take or they have taken this offering um, to, to get supplies to build Solomon's temple. Um, where were we? Offer so willingly after this sword. For all things come of thee, and of thine own hand, and of thine own have we given thee. 
For we are strangers before thee and sojourners, as were all our fathers. Our days on the earth are as a shadow, and there is none abiding. This is the, the key verse. Our Lord, our God, all this store that we have prepared to build thee in house for thine only name cometh of thine hand and is all thine own. God owns all things. He, he already owns all things. And there is coming a day that, he's, that every knee is going to bow anyways. You know, God, he could force us to worship him. He, could just, he can just declare it and we would, we would have to. And again, there's coming a day that every knee is going to bow. Even the ones who hate God, they're going to bow in reverence to the Lord. Um, but he doesn't just do that, though. He, he gives us an option. He wants us. He actually wants us to desire to worship him, to serve him. And that's what it means to serve. We have to serve in, in truth and in sin, sincerity. It means to honor and worship. Um, this, this phrase, to serve, in some other passages, it's used to mean to work or to toil. So you can say that this fourth command is to worship God or to work for him or to toil for him, right? To, to be a worker for him, to honor him, to be pleasing to him. That's what God wanted from his people. He wanted them to work and to worship him in, in sincerity and in truth. Number five in our text, but to fear the Lord thy God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul. Number five, to keep the commandments. To keep the commandments of the Lord and his statutes, which I command thee this day for thy good. And that's a simple one. I don't even have to explain it. What does it mean to keep the commandments of God? It means to obey them. It means to do them. right? To be not just a hearer of the word, but a doer of the word. You, know, you, you want to know something? Do you want to know how we can know that God wanted his people to keep his commandments. You want to know how, how we can know that? He wrote it down. He wrote it, if you are trying to communicate a message to somebody and you want them to, to do it properly and rightly and not make any errors, you write it down. And God, he wrote it down for them so that they could keep it. And again, Deuteronomy, it's the second giving of the law. He's giving it a second time. He wants to emphasize the fact that this is for you people to do and to honor and to keep. And there were all sorts of laws um, that God gave. There were ceremonial, there were moral, there were civic laws, and some were for disputes, some were for moral issues, and some were for how one ought to worship. There were dietary laws. Um, there were all sorts of laws, but all these laws were for the nation of Israel, and God expected them to keep it. And God, not only that, but this was for their own good. And so he gave it to them and he recorded it for them. So we see five commands that God gave. He clearly laid out for his people. He wanted them to fear and to respect him. He wanted them to walk in his ways, to be like him. He wanted them to love him, to desire fellowship with him. He wanted them to serve and to toil for him, that their entire lives would be for him. And finally, he wanted them to keep his commandments. He wanted them to keep his commandments, and these were for their own good. You know, oftentimes we can see the commandments of God sometimes as like restraints, right? Even in 1 John, it says that, that, that the command of God is not grievous to us, right? We who are Christians who love God, God's commandments, they're not grievous. And that's because we have a knowledge, and we understand that these things are, are for our benefit, um, which they were for as well. They were to keep the Israelites pure. Tragically, if you've ever read the rest of this book, you know what kind of happens in the end. Um, God gives Moses a prophecy. and He tells him to prophesy that 
that the people of Israel would eventually turn from God, that they would begin to serve idols. And then what happens? They say, the Israelites, no, we will never do this thing. And, and Moses says, all right, well, you yourselves are witnesses. You have made this, this oath. Um, but we know that shortly after, you know, back and forth, they would rebel, they would serve other gods, and then what would happen? God would judge them, right, like the book of Judges, and then afterwards, uh, he would redeem them and save them. And it was back and forth, 800 years of, like, idolatry. Um, but God was patient with his people and gave them many, many chances. So now, these are the five commands that Moses gives. I want to turn now to the reasons why they ought to keep those commands. And it's more than just because God said so. Uh, these are some great reasons that, um, truthfully, will cause us to want to serve God, will cause us to have the fuel to serve God and the love to serve God. So we see here, just on going through the text, number one, God is the creator. This is the reason why we ought to keep his commands, or why they should keep the commands, I should say, um, at that time. God is the creator. Look at verse 14. Behold, the heaven and the heaven of heavens is the Lord's, thy God, the earth also with all that therein is. You know, God, he made everything. He created all things. <laughs> how, how are you going to rebel against God? How are you going to rebel? He made it all. All right? Just that alone. God's got that, that copyright over us. All right? He's the creator. He made all things. And so we ought to worship him. We ought to serve him and not rebel against him. He created every single thing. And, you know, he says in verse 14, The heaven and the heavens of heavens is the Lord's thy God. And, I, and I, this, is, this is my own opinion. But I think it's an interesting interesting way he, he, that, that Moses says that there. In my opinion is this, that they didn't have an, an understanding of what light years are. We do, right? A light year is when you travel at the speed of light for exactly one year. And it's like millions of miles probably. It's a lot, right? And there are some places in our galaxy that are like 100 billion light years away in what they estimate. These are places that likely we will never ever see. And there are things that we have yet to see that are out there. And what he's saying here is that, that the heaven of the heavens, right? You've got the heavens were the stars. He's saying the heaven of the heavens is thine. You know, God is so big and so powerful that he made things that man will never even see. And he did it all for his own glory. Look at verse 15. Only the Lord had, delight, had a delight in thy fathers to love them. And he chose their seed after them, even you above all people, as it is this day. So he contrasts that with the statement we just read. Right? God made the heavens of the heavens. He made planets that they had never even heard of. And yet, he had a delight in thy fathers to love them. And he chose their seed after them. God already owned every single person and thing and star. And yet, sovereignly, he set his love on Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And he chose their seed to be his people. You know, as we read, and I think in a different passage, you know, God didn't choose them because they were something worthy to be choose of. They were the fewest of all the peoples. And yet God chose to make the Israelites his possession and people. And he fulfilled that old promise that he gave Abraham, that out of his loins all the nations would be blessed, which was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. You know, he didn't just choose them, eeny, meeny, miny, mo, but this was according to God's plan and purpose. And he fulfilled all his prophecies, and that would be, that's one of them, I should say. So now we get to verse 16, and he kind of stops here, and he gives them a chance to respond. 
He calls them to make a choice. He says, circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart, and be no more stiff-necked. Be no more stiff-necked. So the command goes out. Circumcise your hearts. Unstiffen your neck. Return from your rebellion. Repent. Come back to him, he's saying. In light of all that's been said and all that the, that's been done for the Israelites, he commands them to circumcise their hearts. What does that mean there? Circumcise their hearts. Circumcision was, was a command that God gave to Abraham to perform on all his children and people. It, it, was, separate. it was to separate them from the other peoples of the land. You know, physically speaking, we all know what it was, but more importantly, it was a, a picture of something spiritual. Just as our hearts can be surrounded with sin, we are commanded to be circumcised in our heart, right? To be born again. It was a departure from their old natural identity, of which every man comes into the world naturally and by default, and a removing of the natural to be a part of the unnatural by God's command. Likewise, we are called to consider ourselves dead to sin, but alive, in, in, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. And so were the Israelites. As it reads, be no more stiff-necked, repent, turn, be born again, in other words. Circumcise, therefore, your hearts. So we saw in the beginning, the number one reason that God was a creator. The number two reason why they ought to do these things is God's character. And this is very applicable to us because this will cause us um, to worship God and to trust him more. Look at verses 17 and 18. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, a great God, a mighty and a terrible, which regardeth not persons nor taketh reward. He doth execute the judgment of the fatherless and widow and loveth the stranger in giving him food and raiment. The people were to do as God required because, because of who he was, of his character. He wasn't just any God in some pantheon of gods, the God of the Israelites, the God of the Amalites, the God of the Moab. No, he is the God of the gods. And he says it himself in Isaiah that there are no other gods. You know, thankfully, we serve the one and only God. His words say this, I know no other gods. There are no gods before me, nor gods after me. No, I know none. That's God's character. And that's, a, a, that's a, a, a reason and a motivation for us. And for them, he's giving to keep his commands. But also, look at verse 17. A great God, a mighty God, a terrible, which regardeth not persons, nor taketh reward. What does that mean there? It means that God is not impartial. And I don't know about you, but I've dealt with many people in my life that were impartial. And that's something that frustrates me like none other. Because it's so unfair, right? When someone holds another person in higher esteem than another person. And it doesn't matter what you do, they have favoritism. And they take bribes and they're corrupt and they're guilty. And you might have a system in place, but because the person in charge of the system is a little bit corrupt and impartial, it falls apart. And what happens? Righteousness is not upheld. And bad people exceed, and good people are down, and it just all falls apart. And that just bothers me. Maybe it bothers you, but I, that, really, um, <laughs> that really irks me. But I'm so thankful that our God is not impartial, that he's not a respecter of men or persons. He doesn't hold anyone in high esteem because, honestly, we're, we're all worms. We're all dust. 
you know, God is not, oh, this person, he's, oh, I need to save him. I need to get him in the kingdom. He's going to do some good work. It's not like that at all. Uh, God doesn't need any of us. And so God is impartial. He doesn't take bribes. And because of that, I'm thankful. Look at verse 18. He doth execute the judgment of the fatherless and widow, and loveth the stranger in giving him food and raiment. You know, God is a just God. And even people who have been mistreated, right, the fatherless and the widow, he loves them. And he upholds justice. And, you know, we know in our system that justice isn't always upheld, so sometimes the bad guy gets away. But I'm thankful to say that under God, no bad guy gets away. That every sin will one day be accounted before, before God. That he's going to hold everyone accountable. And that no person is going to slip through the cracks, but God is going to, righteousness, righteousness is going to reign. And he won't let anyone get away. He executes justice for the orphan and for the widow. And I'm thankful for that. So we see God is the creator, is a motivation. We see that God's character is a motivation. Lastly, we see God's faithfulness. Look at verses 19 through 22. He says, Love ye therefore the stranger. For ye were strangers in the land of Egypt. Thou shalt fear the Lord thy God. Him shalt thou serve, and to him shalt thou cleave, and swear by his name. He is thy praise, and he is thy God, that hath done for thee these great and terrible things which thine eyes have seen. Thy fathers went down into Egypt with threescore and ten persons, and now the Lord thy God hath made thee as the stars of heaven for multitude. In verse 19, he says something very interesting. Love ye therefore the stranger, for ye were strangers. You know, God calls them to remembrance of, of where they came from, right? They had no reason to boast or to think that they were any greater. And so he tells them, love the stranger. Be kind to the, to the, to the, to the outcast, in, in a sense, because you were strangers at a point in time. You were strangers in the land of Egypt. You know, they didn't save themselves from Pharaoh. God saved them. So they really had no reason to boast. Verse 20, Thou shalt fear the Lord thy God. Him shalt thou serve, and to him shalt thou cleave, and swear by his name. Now, I'm of the opinion that Moses is the one who wrote the, the Pentateuch, right? The first five Bibles. That would include Genesis. And obviously, God is God's spirit, right? The Holy Spirit is the one who gives the inspiration. He spoke by holy men of God, right? So that's how we came, that's how we have this book. But he still, he used men. And so he used Moses, I believe, to write Genesis. And he uses a word here in this passage, him shalt thou serve, and to him shalt thou cleave, and swear by his name. And that word cleave is used in a very, very famous passage that we all know. Talking about marriage, that a man and woman um, that a man shall leave his father and shall be joined to his wife and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And I don't think it was by accident that Moses used that word there. And I think what he was trying to tell him is, you need to cleave to your God in the same way that you cleave to your spouse. You need to be joined with him and not separate from your Lord. Right? There are all sorts of idols and gods that they were surrounded by. And he's saying, be faithful Cleave to God. Don't depart from him. Be one with him. Verse 21, He is thy praise and he is thy God that hath done for thee these great and terrible things which thine eyes have seen. You know, they, 
these people in particular, right? Like, like the audience who's hearing this with their own ears, they would have seen miracles upon miracles upon miracles with their own eyes. I mean, you talk about literally food fell from heaven. Bread fell from heaven. And when they got grumpy, meat fell from heaven. And this is enough meat for millions of people. Logistically speaking, you can't do that now. <laughs> you couldn't feed millions of people with chicken. I guarantee, no, no, you couldn't do it. Not only that, but the sandals on their feet were kept from wearing down. You know, I have to buy shoes <laughs> regularly because they get, what happens? They get worn down. You start using them and they just, they, they're all crooked. And yet these people are walking in a desert for 40 years and their sandals aren't wearing down. Their clothing is staying intact. That's a miracle in and of itself. Or how about the fact that you've got a cloud by day that's leading this great people and a fire by night. What a miracle. And they had seen it with their own eyes. <laughs> he is thy praise and he is thy God that hath done for thee these great and terrible things which thine eyes have seen. So all of those things that I just said, they were all testimony to God's faithfulness. But this is the greatest one. Verse 22. Thy fathers went down into Egypt with threescore and ten persons. That's seventy people. And now the Lord thy God hath made thee as the stars of heaven for multitude. One of the greatest testaments for them with their own eyes and as a reminder for us of God's faithfulness is the fact that God took a group of 70 people who were hungry and starving. He took them from the land of Egypt and he took care of them and he brought them to a foreign land and he kept them there safely. And they grew and they multiplied under the safety of Joseph and God's favor and protection. And they became such a vast population that Pharaoh had to expel them or wanted to enslave them because they were getting too big, too big for the superpower of the world. Um, what an incredible testimony to God's faithfulness in him keeping his promise. You know, all sorts of cultures, they get wiped out. You know, like the Incans and all, like, they're not even here anymore. <laughs> you know, and this is 70 people. They could have been snuffed at any point, but God has hand of protection on him and his faithfulness lasted and endured, and they went from 70 souls to millions of people. When you read the book of Numbers, it's just incredible. You know, 10,000 of Judah, and 100,000 of Benjamin, and it's just crazy. And this, these, that's just the military. That's a huge amount. You think of, like, the, the militaries that we have now. Like, China has, like, a, like a one-million-man army. That's nothing compared to Israel. <laughs> you know, it's pretty incredible. And that's a testament to God's faithfulness. And I'm a little bit over time here. The premise of what I wanted to say tonight was this. That God gave these commands specifically to Israel. We're not bound to keep the ceremonial laws and the dietary laws or any of those things. We are bound to keep the moral laws because they're, they're um, reiterated in the New Testament. But the reasons why the Israelites were to keep these laws, I feel, are great motivation for me and for you. God's the creator. He's the Lord of all things. God's character. You know, when we consider all that he's done for us in saving us, in going to great lengths to, to, to die for sinners who were unworthy of anything, 
you know, when we consider all of that, it should stir us, right? As Paul says, the love of Christ constrains me or compels me, I think is the word there. And when we look at God's faithfulness throughout the New Testament, throughout the Old Testament, of how he preserved his people, how he fed thousands of people, uh, you know, it's just incredible. When we think of God's faithfulness in our own lives and what he's done for us and the miracles that he's done in our lives, in changing us and turning us from, from sinful, wicked people and turning us into something that we had no desire to do, outside of God's grace, I would be unrecognizable to you all. But I thank God for his faithfulness in not letting me fall away in preserving me and keeping my faith. I'm thankful for God for the little things that he does for me in my own life. You know, you all know my dog, Bella. She got lost 10 days in the woods. And Gloria, you know, there used to be coyotes out there. We would hear it. How did God, how did this dog survive in the woods with coyotes? I don't know. I don't, and I'll tell you what, I wasn't worthy. I wasn't worthy to have that gift. I prayed for it, I asked it, and if God wouldn't have given to me, it wouldn't have been his fault. But he was still kind in giving me such a nice, gracious gift as more time with my dog. I'm thankful to God for that. I'm thankful for his faithfulness to me. Even when I, even when I sin, it's not like the moment I sin that, boom, that's it, you're done. Lightning bolt, you know? Where sin abounds, grace did much more abound. I'm thankful that when I sin, I can go to his word and I can say, Lord, you have said that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. We have many reasons to rejoice and praise God. And as we read the Bible, as we'll see that and we'll be encouraged by that. And we, we'll be reminded of that. And um, that was my goal tonight. I hope that this little passage with Moses speaking to the Israelites was an encouragement to you, to God's faithfulness. And um, I hope you were blessed by it. Let's pray.